Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Fresh Economic Thinking and hi Cameron, how are you? Good, Jonathan. So this week's Barney is about rent control. Yeah, that's that's right, Jonathan. I'm not sure if you know, but I've um, been sort of looking into rent control quite a lot. You know, it's quite a taboo subject in economics, right? You've probably heard it's economics 101. Um, you know, rent con- control destroys inflation, uh, destroys housing construction, let me say. Um, Honestly, so when you say rent control, I think New York City, because I don't really know anywhere else and uh, that has it. And I've just heard about it in, in media. I guess I consume a lot of New York media. Yeah, which, yeah, don't we all, unfortunately. Um, but I think uh, I'm just having a quick look. Maybe it was Milton Friedman who said rent control uh, is meant to help people, but it's the only thing I know that can destroy a city more effectively than bombing. Wow. Something like that. Someone can correct me on who I'm supposed to be um, quoting here. But it's a famous um, line in economics. Um, I don't really care who said it. It's one of those thoughtless things that, that get you into, um, you know, that get you trapped in this economics 101 mindset and don't help you think more deeply. So so the Barney this week is, is a guy on Twitter, Alex Stapp. Don't really know who he is. Alec Stapp. Um, posted a, a chart of uh, multifamily building permits in Minneapolis and St. Paul. So they're these twin cities in Minnesota. And um, what I mean is they're very close. So you could live in either one and work in either one. And, and St. Paul implemented a rent control um, ordinance that, that started uh, on the 2nd of May this year and essentially limits how much you can increase the rent by 3% per year. And Minneapolis did not, even though they have also been discussing a similar thing and so he shows a chart of um building permits from november to january 2020 or november 2020 to january 2021 and the same for 2022 and shows that building permits have fallen in saint paul and risen in minneapolis and then a few other people have made the same thing and now there's a whole sort of cottage industry of media talking about this using two comparable two three-month periods, comparing them both a year prior to the um, rent control actually taking effect. Someone else here is Nick Hanula, Sauna Insider is his handle. He's comparing November to April. But the weird thing about that and why I'm uh, you know, I'm having an argument on online is that the 3% control on rent increases doesn't really change what the present value of that future flow of rents that a housing developer landlord, you know, we'd call it build to rent housing actually gets. If you actually look at the data, rents have increased across that urban region by less than 3% per year for the last 25 years. So if history repeats, this rent control will just smooth out the same cash flow. So we've got this weird conundrum where we've got people saying, ha ha, look, I've found I'm comparing two three-month periods, both prior to the rent control happening and saying this is because of some future rent control event without actually having an economic story of how this actually changes the economic payoff and why you would not build a building 
with a 3% limit on how much you can increase rents when history shows that essentially the present value of your cash flow is unchanged. And so what it, what it led me to, to re- recall or finally sort of discover why I'm so confused sometimes when I have discussions about rent control and housing supply is that a lot of people seem to believe these two incompatible ideas. And these are, first, that housing developers are willing to build enough new homes to push down rents. That is, if we let the market rip, housing developers will keep building until rents fall. Okay? But if you simply cap the rate at which they can increase rents to be quite similar to the historical norms, all of a sudden they all stop building. So which is it? Are they willing to keep building as rents fall? Or if you cap rents at 3%, rental growth at 3%, no one's going to build anything. It can't be both. And so I think I'm going to start um, you know, testing a lot of the um, commentators in this housing supply debate about whether they have uh, acknowledged the contradiction in their views or not. And uh, um, it's quite interesting, right? Because when I pointed out on, on social media, on Twitter, about this tweet saying you're comparing two arbitrary periods prior to the rent control. And secondly, some of it's preliminary data. It's not even complete. You know, how can this be a plausible effect? A lot of people are just piling in and they're like, don't you know, returns on housing aren't good. Don't you know that banks won't lend if there's rent control? Don't you know all this? I'm like, you haven't really even thought about it. You don't even know what the normal rate of increase in rents is. You just, it's just a pile on. So anyway, that's my Barney of the week, and no doubt that's going to continue. Can I, yeah, can I clarify? Are you in favour of rent control or not? Well, I think. Well, I don't think capping rents is a good idea because you end up with secondary markets, right? People are going to make side payments, but what this is is merely a cap on the rate at which you can increase rents. So in a housing boom, it's essentially protecting sitting tenants from high rental increases that aren't sort of smoothed out to match their income growth. So this type of rent control, I am in favor of. Uh, Take me back a step. You said rent control, that's a cap on the actual, you know, price um, Mm -hmm. doesn't work because you get, what was it? Side payments? Side payments. Yeah. So you can imagine that you've got, um, this is the New York example, right? Yeah. You can imagine that rents are capped at a certain year. You can't increase rents uh, above this. And then 10 years later, your tenants move out and you can't charge your new tenants any more than your old tenants. So the question is, how do you choose a new tenant when your rents are fixed at some arbitrarily low amount compared to everybody else's? Because your tenants have an incentive to say, hey, I'd love to get this rent controlled thing. I know the market rent is $500 a week but you can only charge 300 i'll give you 150 dollars of you know free you know piano lessons or whatever the case may be or i see but that assumes you have some other bit of the market where there's no rent control what if you just had rent control everywhere yeah so even if there's rent control everywhere you still uh, you still end up with this allocation problem because i mean think about this all the landlords already have rent control they have the right to, to occupy those um, dwellings for free if they want to but the, the rent that they're charging is the side payment above the controlled rent of zero 
So you can think of a, a, a landlord or a property owner as a, as a tenant of the state and they're paying zero. And so they've got this fixed rent. So they're able to charge somebody else the market rent, which is like the side payment. Um, so that's, does that make sense to you when I say it like that? Sort of. I, I guess I'm wondering what is the, like, what, what are the side effects if you just have universal rent control? And I'm not clear yet what side effects there are, what bad side effects there are. Well, I, you're just going to end up with, with um, a, a sort of black market in, in housing. That's okay. the thing. Like, so I just like in any, any if you ban drugs, you get a, ba- yeah, a black well, market. Okay, same well, thing. You can just, you know, you could announce tomorrow that landlords can't charge anything for their rents. Okay. So I get to stay where I am, but as soon as I want to move, how do I get that? instead of someone else how do i get that because there's a zero rent they can't charge me anything and they can't charge the other guy anything we both want to move there how do we choose between us well we keep offering the landlord sort of side payments you know bribes until we've reached the maximum and that's essentially the market rent so we, you know, do you have I think a, you're going to end up recreating yeah. the market do, do you have a sort of uh one paragraph level answer to people who are concerned as i think many people are with the um unaffordability of rent at the moment yeah what's my <laughs> what's my message to them or what do i think um or maybe that's actually do. our topic that's actually our yeah, topic let's isn't do it that. <laughs> we've come to the answer all right so you've been promoting on your substack uh, and on many article in many articles uh, your idea for essentially the government to just build public housing and you've called it housemate so let's hear all about it yeah so it's called housemate and uh, that's because we have these conjoined word policies in australia medicare job seeker and all the rest of it so housemate it's just my catchy name for a public home ownership system so Essentially, you know, the, the, the problem of rents or housing in general is that um, we pay the market price because we don't have an alternative, right? We don't have a rent-free alternative. You don't own property. You're put out in this world. You've got to pay someone else to, to put your bed somewhere and have a sleep. So you don't have an alternative. And the idea of Housemate is to create a public housing, public home ownership option an alternative that everybody can access um, if they don't own property elsewhere. And essentially what I did is I ripped off Singapore's housing development board system because for the last couple of years, I've been uh, talking about housing markets a lot and I've realized that people have really sort of idiosyncratic concerns about the market. For some people, it's high rents. For some, it's the high prices. For some, it's access to mortgages. For some, there aren't enough investors to get new apartments uh, built because investors buy most of the new housing supply. And essentially, when they buy, build to order, we build more apartments. So people have lots of different concerns. And, and, and I figured it's kind of my responsibility as a housing researcher to find out what has worked in the past or elsewhere and promote the best uh, best policy response that I can find. And when I looked around the world and looked historically, Singapore just stood out as a place we can all point to and say, hey, 
they've solved the housing problem. You know, they're still having arguments, but relative to anybody else, and no matter what your concern is, their system as a whole is better. So that, so I, I um, put together a report about proposing Housemate, which is essentially adopting all the best elements of that system for Australia. Um, and so that's what I've been doing. I've been trying to talk to politicians, talk to the media, talk to a lot of different people to try and change the conversation about housing from how do we lend people more money to buy a house to can we craft a system that provides alternatives and gives people security if they want it without, for example, crushing the value of existing housing. Okay. So that's so it. That's it. I mean, it sounds like pretty, uh, I can imagine many people saying, oh, this is like old school leftist, you know, government intervention, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So what's wrong with that, I guess, is the question, because we see that neither side of politics, including the new government, seem interested in building public housing yeah or and they, but at the same time they've got all sorts of interesting schemes about taking um equity stakes in people uh, in in property yeah. for people who are of deserving categories like the new south wales government just announced such a scheme for people who are working in certain occupations um 40 whatever equity well okay so why is it such um an unpopular idea to just directly build the houses yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, probably the answer to that is to differentiate what Singapore does and what traditional public housing in Australia does. So okay. public housing in Australia is essentially 2% of the housing stock. Um, and it is targeted at the lowest, most needy households. So these are, these are needy people, right? Um, they're low-income households. And it takes a lot of management, right? To help these people function, right? They're not people who know how to, you know, repair their house or whatever, right? Um, so, so that's why you get this sort of reputation. You've put the the most needy households all together in one place. <laughs> in Singapore, it's very very different. Ninety percent of people in Singapore live in an in a dwelling that was built by the public housing developer. So this is a middle class. Um, scheme that everybody has the right to and everybody is mixed around. So those low-income households are in your apartment complex somewhere. So One of very, my favourite topics, yeah, universal provision of something versus to the least advantaged. It really makes a difference. I totally agree. I think that's, and we got there in healthcare, right? In healthcare, I should, you know, I use the public hospital. I'm not the bottom 2%. I'm the top top 30 percent of households right but i love the public hospital system and when when middle class educated people yeah and when middle class educated people rely on the public system it's maintained they make demands of their politicians that it's maintained Yeah. yeah so let me let me give you an example about that okay because and then we can maybe get into the technical details of how they supply houses and whatnot but let me give you an example of this this sort of uh, buy-in this political buy-in that you're the point you're getting to I was meeting um, some people from Singapore who are involved in HDB and because we're discussing how to promote it here. In fact, the Singapore uh, HDB has corporatized elements of it that are trying to expand their services internationally. And so they're actually doing trials in Brunei, in uh, Myanmar, and in India. 
and saying this system works we've got expertise for designing and building in bulk uh, designs that have low maintenance costs etc so so they're keen to come to australia and i was talking to them in sydney and we're at a small laneway cafe and it was a rainy day and and there was uh, a water pipe like a drain coming off the veranda of, of the building next to the laneway and just pouring like the dirty water off the building right into the middle where people are trying to walk through now that's not an interesting story what's interesting is that they both said to me look that's a bit of a troublesome don't you think if this was singapore that would never happen because people would be on the phone to their local politician or the hdb bureaucrat and they would never allow the water to just splash into the public street like that and that would be fixed it just it just wouldn't happen because everybody has this high expectations of what hdb does for them and the standards they expect and i just thought wow isn't that amazing um yeah that that there's this sort of political feedback loop when everyone you know is proud of it um and, and, and investing more in it is politically you know beneficial it's such an interesting insight that uh, lee kuan yu had as a sort of authoritarian you know social conservative is that if you want a stable society with like traditional values and or however you want to express it you need to have secure housing yeah, so I was listening to an interview this morning uh, with uh, the CEO of the HDB or whatever they call the, the head uh, of the, the organization. And he was saying, you know, the philosophy there is that you can't be a rich country and have slums. <laughs> that was essentially, you know, to, to exactly your point. We can't just leave people in slums on the street uh, and be a rich country. So let's start with the housing and, you know, get people to buy into a system that, that, invests a lot and improves uh improves the economy so yeah there's definitely a, a political um bargain there and i think it's funny that we haven't sort of struck a similar one on housing at, you know well we did after the second world war it's quite interesting i'm reading a book right now written in 1947 about the housing problem in australia oh what was that right? <laughs> tell me about that after this yeah so it's it was written uh, in 1947 it was a meeting of uh I'm just going to bring up um, the the cover page here. Papers at the Winter Forum of the Australian Institute of Political Science, Wollongong, June 20 to 22, 1947, The Housing Problem in Australia. Uh, really interesting story. Someone who follows me online was cleaning, you know, a retired guy cleaning out his study, said, you know, you might find this interesting and posted it to me, which was very nice. That's amazing. Um, yeah and what what's the amazing thing is that a lot of what's written in that book could have been written yesterday and i will write this up on my Substack. i've got some interesting snippets uh about but but more interesting is they they explain that pre-war the market worked really well for the upper class the property market and the housing market but it you know even after a hundred years in australia the working class never seemed to be able to get quality dwellings and there are always you know slums and overcrowding in the city and that was their sort of logic and they said we you know the period between 1947 and um 1970 uh even even the early 60s was the biggest rise in home ownership in australia and and you can see from what was written in this book that that the attitude there was this is a problem we're going to fix collectively we're good at mobilizing resources we've had the war we're going to mobilize resources for housing and the government has a responsibility for getting everyone in a house. 
which is just the same as what Singapore does or has done for 60 years straight. The government has a responsibility to provide everyone a place to live securely. Um, So, yeah, quite interesting that there are real parallels and it's not something that Australia has shied away from before. Okay, so with your housemate concept, uh, tell me a bit more of the details. How how would people get in? Who uh, would get it? And what would they pay? That kind of thing. Yeah, so these are the tricky questions when you get down to it. It's it's kind of easy with healthcare. You've got to be sick, right? <laughs> no one no one wants a heart operation unless they need one. So you don't end up with lots of people trying to get it. But with housing, you know, a lot of people want it. So the the way it works in Singapore and the way I've proposed we copy it is essentially you need to separate the market into households who don't own any housing and households that do. And if you don't, you're you become an eligible buyer for the scheme. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're young or old or you've had a divorce and you don't have any property, you comply. So this is a, you only get one property. If you, if you want to buy in the private market, you can do it, but you only get one in the, in the housemate system and you become an eligible buyer and housemate essentially acts as a mass scale housing developer. It builds houses for people and eligible buyers show up and they express interest in this, um, development in the area and say, I would like to buy the three bedroom apartment or this townhouse or this four bedroom house in this subdivision. And uh, essentially housemate goes and builds it for them. And they have essentially just all the rights and obligations of a private property owner. They pay the rates, they maintain the building, all of that stuff. But there are two requirements. One is they must occupy that dwelling for five years that's the Singapore requirement. I've said seven years. Secondly, if they sell that, they must sell it to another eligible buyer. They can't just sell it to the open market or to you know, an international investor or whatever. It's got to be an eligible resident buyer who doesn't own property elsewhere. And you can then trade these existing housemate dwellings in a parallel market of only eligible buyers which is what happens in Singapore. They call it the resale market for HDB dwellings. And the reason that you know, that adds flexibility to the system, it sort of mimics the private market. But people won't bid as high as they would in the private market because every eligible buyer has the option to go to housemate and buy a brand new dwelling at a discounted price. And that price is usually construction costs. So... Um, so in Singapore, I'll, I'll give you some example. You can buy a brand new apartment for between $80,000 and $500,000. If you know, $80,000 is the smallest studio, $500,000, they call it an executive suite. These are the new bigger dwellings that uh, they now make. So it's really a, a housing system for everyone. The lower your income, you get a cash, um, a cash subsidy as well to buy these you get a you get to use your compulsory savings so here i'm saying we should be using compulsory super to buy housemate dwellings cuz what better thing for you to have in retirement than a house there is no better asset to own uh, in singapore your compulsory savings are 20% that you can use for this so what that means in practice oh there's also an eligible age so in singapore you have to be 21 and a couple and i've proposed in australia perhaps a bit older at 24 for a, a couple and older for a single it's a very pro-family thing in Singapore. Um, but what happens if you're in your 20s as a couple and you, 
you know, my Singapore friends tell me that um, saying to your partner, should we go to HDB, Housing Development Board, is the same as saying, will you marry me? <laughs> because <laughs> that's like that's like a big milestone in your life. Are we committed as a couple now? Because you have to apply as a couple to HDB to get a house for life at a cheap price. Yeah. And so, uh, I, you know, for example, I, I uh, interviewed a young couple who just bought HDB. You know, they're educated um, people. They're not, you know, working class by any means, but, you know, they love the system and they um, bought a pretty decent size apartment in their, in their early 20s still. And they said, yeah, actually for most people, because you can use your compulsory savings, because the prices are so discounted and because the loan interest rate is uh, sort of regulated, so the HDB used to offer you a discounted home loan. Now all the banks participate um, below a regulated interest rate. Most buyers don't have any additional out-of-pocket costs when they buy an HDB dwelling because it, it the compulsory savings pays for everything. Now, that wouldn't be the case here because we only have 9 or 10% compulsory savings and there it's 20%. But you can see how bigger change it would be. So if we were spending less than 20% and using 10% of our super, we're talking buying a brand new house for less than 10% of your income, um, which is much, much less than what most first-home buyers pay. And so that's sort of how the system works. They build about 20,000 dwellings a year now. And the subsidy to that, because buyers pay most of the construction cost, the subsidy is only something like $800 million a year for 20,000 homes. So something like um, $40,000, $50,000 a dwelling. Um, so it's pretty, um, you know, it's quite reasonable at the end of the day. And, and we can certainly do that here. So for a buyer, you know, I've run some models. I've got this report out there that, you know, you're looking at instead of paying $30,000 in mortgage repayments for a typical home, you're talking something um, more like 15000 or less. And if you buy a housemate dwelling in a cheap area, it's certainly possible that your super, um, your super payments would pay, the, pay off the dwelling themselves. Um, and so I would see Singapore is a bit different because mostly they're, you know, major apartment sort of suburbs. So in Australia, the challenge would not be so much finding sites, but managing demand by doing apartments in the inner suburbs of the capital cities, townhouses in the suburbs and detached houses in the regions and on the fringe. So there'd be a bit of a process um, there, but I think it's totally manageable. And you can see once there's this buy-in, there's this political feedback. You can imagine um, there's a bit of a demographic bubble in a regional town like Caboolture, north of um, Brisbane, and everyone's like, hey, there's no housemate dwellings in my area. I'm going to lobby, lobby my local member, right? And, and there's this sort of political responsiveness uh, that we currently um, don't have in a public system, but what the private market has in the private system, they will see that and go, oh, there's lots of demand in Caboolture. I'll go and try and do some subdivisions. Yeah. So I think we can we can nurture those those feedbacks and that responsiveness because we we can see it happening uh, in the Singapore system. Yeah, and just to wrap up, um, I'll bring I'll be egocentric and bring this discussion back to myself. Um, I'm currently <laughs> like many people, you know, in this uh, having this these thoughts about renting versus buying. I 
you know, I'm, I'm still renting. I think that maybe if, maybe if I bought and I wanted to go and work overseas, that might be a bit of a hassle. Um, but on the other hand, you know, buying is obviously has advantages that have meant, you know, had been discussed widely and we don't need to go into that here. So how would having housemate around, how would that change the discussion or the thought process of someone like me um, and, and the, the calculation on, you know, renting versus buying? Yeah, well, you can see that Singapore went from 20% owner-occupiers to 89% owner-occupation from the 1960s till today since they've had that system. So pretty much everyone buys. And I think what you'll find, it, it'll be quite different in Australia because all the 10 million existing dwellings will still be owned privately. So you'll still get a lot of choice in the private market. So I think what you'll find is that rental markets really soften. You know, I, I kind of pitch this as... Soften as in it becomes cheaper to rent? Yeah, because all your renters, most of your renters have this outside option of buying a cheap housemate dwelling. Got it. So they're not going to then go bid up against each other. You know, so, uh, so I do think it will take the heat out and then there will still be this trade-off of, well, renting's not too bad. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to find a place. Rents aren't too high. Housemate's pretty good, but I've got to live there for five or seven years, whatever it is. Um, I can always buy a housemate after I get back from my overseas holiday. If I want to spend my 20s traveling, I can still get a housemate when I'm 30. It just gives everybody a lot more options and a lot cheaper options. So, And that's that's sort of my attitude in general is... Uh, housing, um, you know, we feel squeezed in housing because we don't have options. You either rent money from the bank or you rent from a landlord, right? This adds another one that takes the pressure off those two options. Um, so I think you'd find, you'll still find yourself in a dilemma like, oh, should we do, should, should we do that? Should we do this? But the level of the, the price that you uh, are trading off between them will be a lot, lot lower. You'll find that the rents will be lower and the uh, your housemate option relatively cheap great place to end thank you so much for explaining that and uh, look forward to chatting again next time um, i'll be away for a bit but uh, hopefully in about three four weeks be back with another one looking forward to it